All right. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and tonight we are going to have kind of a special night where we're talking with James Snap Jr. on the subject of textual criticism. It's going to be a fun conversation. We're going to cover a lot of ground, and uh, this should be this should be a good a good uh, podcast for you to listen to and to challenge you um, on what your view of the text is. Uh, we're going to get into a lot of different subjects with textual variance, um, equitable eclecticism, uh, the Textus Receptus, the modern critical text, and a variety of other uh, um, subcategories as well. So stay tuned. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Okay, so um, we're live right now. Give me a couple seconds. I'm going to share this. I talked about it uh, with James Snap and a couple other groups that we're going to share this in the live stream for others to join in a live watch party with us and engage live uh, if they so desire. Let me switch my scene here and uh, it'll give me probably about 30 seconds or so just to bear with me to post this. Okay, looks like it's loading. And sweet. Okay, so we've got, for those of you who may just be joining in a couple of the different Facebook groups that uh, we're doing the watch party in, welcome to our, our live stream with uh, James Snap Jr. We're going to be talking textual criticism. And uh, let me get James on the screen so you can see him as well. And we'll go from there. So James, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's kind of been um, a work in progress. And uh, this is this is a special night for me because I engage a lot with um, this particular subject. It's very important to myself as well as, as you, I know, uh, because you spend so much time um, just kind of breaking down some of the differences between uh, the methodologies of different texts. And uh, so um, I really appreciate you coming on and being willing to join in this conversation. Um, I think it's, it's an important topic, so welcome. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having me here. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. I want the audience to become familiar with you if, if they're not already. Um, so let's just start with a little bit about who you are, what your background is, 
and then we'll get into uh, a little bit of the work that you do in this particular field. All right, I'm James Snap Jr., as we said, and I'm the, uh, the, the preacher at the Curtisville Christian Church in Central Indiana. I was a missionary in Belize in Central America from uh, 1990 to 2000, and um, I've got a wife and three kids, and uh, that's me. Perfect. So um, I, I follow you on your blog, and uh, um, I, you put out a lot of good stuff. I, you've written some books in the area on the Pericope Adulteri. You've written a lot um, of different blog articles and, and even books on uh, just j- different textual variants in general. Um, but where can, where can people find your blog site and access some of this material if, if, they, if they wanted to? Well, you can go to uh, www.thetextofthegospels.com, and if you're looking for a particular passage, there's a little search bar up at the top. Just uh, carefully uh, type the passage in there, and if I've written anything on it, it, sh- it should pop right up. Perfect. Uh, some things I've written a lot on, and uh, there'll be lots of things, and you'll just have to sort through them as you go. Perfect. So um, I have got it pulled up. I should be able to. You should be able to see the... Um, screen share here and if you haven't already um, checked that out I would encourage you to go check out this blog site um, there it is it's the text of the gospels.com uh, this is the most recent post that you've put up which is New Testament manuscripts at Dumbarton Oaks uh, then the the next blog post that you put up there was Matthew 28:19, baptism in whose name and uh, the one before that, which uh, was the surprise in Athens, but then we've got a, another fun one, which was the Halloween special put out by Jonathan Sheffield and the animated version, which you, which you engaged in as well. Um, let me switch back to the screen there so that we can get you back. So, Okay, now um, the Facebook group, if anybody wanted to join the Facebook group and kind of engage in this particular dialogue, uh, what is what is that Facebook group um, so that people can actually know where to go to access that material and to kind of engage in the conversation? Yeah, I, yeah, I started studying a New Testament textual criticism uh, back in 1986, and now that we have the Internet and there's all kinds of resources out there. Um, a long time ago, well, not really a long time ago, but, but Wheelan Wilker, some, some folks will remember the uh, Yahoo group that uh, Wheelan Wilker had, and now the... Uh, the, the group that I met the administrator at is uh, NT Textual Criticism on Facebook. So just apply to be a member there, and I will consider your membership. I probably will approve you almost automatically. Probably. Perfect. It, it, it helps to know a few more people in the group. See, now that's definitely true because uh, you approved me to join the group. So if I can get in, that means just about in. No, I'm just kidding. So. Um, now I've got a note here that you actually you did develop an interest for New Testament textual criticism way back in 1986, which was before you became a missionary in Belize. How did that um, timeline kind of overlap, and uh, what what kind of sparked your interest in this particular uh, this particular field way back in 1986? Well, I already had an interest in. Uh noticing textual variants, you know, the differences in the footnotes and different readings between the, the, the King James and, say, the New American Standard. But um, at a library book sale at Taylor, Taylor University here in Indiana, I found a, a copy of uh, Kursop Lake's The Text of the New Testament, which uh, was a small little book, 
But uh, very interesting. I kind of provoked my interest, and I said, you know, this is something that I'd like to make a specialty if I if I could. And uh, over the years, it's uh, something that I've just read a whole lot about. Perfect. Now, um, that kind of transitions to uh, the work that you've done on the subject, which would be um, some of the different Kindle books that people can access online. Um, why don't you tell everybody uh, um, what you've actually written and is, and is published that they can access on Kindle, if you would. All right. Well, um, in textual criticism of the New Testament, um, the two biggest passages are the ending of the Gospel of Mark and the story of the woman caught in adultery. And at the ending of the Gospel of Mark, uh, footnotes almost always uh, give just enough information to make a person dangerous. Um, they don't mention uh, patristic yeah. evidence. They just mention you know, some of the oldest and best with, without identifying what they are or how many of them they are. Uh, I looked into that, and uh, over the course of time, I, I had researched quite a bit about it. But I wanted to not write anything officially until I was 40 years old. And uh, so after I turned 40, um, I wrote uh, the results of a lot of research that had come before and put it into a book called Authentic, The Case for Mark 16, 9-20. And I kind of summarized the case uh, for the genuineness of those 12 verses and put it all into a book where I would systematically go century by century what the evidence stands up as and uh, offer some analysis and offer some uh, internal evidence uh, considerations. Uh, but also, uh, quite a bit of the opening of the book is correcting misinformation. There is uh, a, just a ton of false claims, inaccurate claims, are, are just misleadingly vague claims and selective claims out there. Uh, if you've, in, all of you out there that have attended Dallas Theological Seminary, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so, so that's all in the book. And it's uh, available for 99 cents on Amazon as a Kindle ebook. Or if anybody doesn't have 99 cents, uh, contact me and I'll send you a copy for free. Perfect. Now, um, this particular, th let me get the camera. That's the problem with doing this all on my own. I've, I've got to switch the camera and manage all of that while having a conversation at the same time. Um, but this, this, this is why it's so important to me and to so many others um, this particular subject is is kind of your defense for Mark 16, your defense on the Pericope Adulteri, and so many of these other passages that we we, we know as uh, laymen or even as textual scholars to be a textual variant in the text. So um, what we're really trying to do is <clears throat> is is to see what is and what isn't an authentic um, text, and and I think that's where it carries over into some of the differences between what would make up the modern critical text, the Textus Receptus, uh, the Byzantine majority text by Robinson Pierpont, and then uh, then you've got a, a view which is called equitable eclecticism, um, which I think would be kind of a good time to transition into just talking about um, why and what that particular view is and how it kind of differs with 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 these other with these other views as well. All right. Um, also, I forgot to mention there. I do have an, an, another book, uh, actually several, several books. But the next, other, the other uh, book that's focused on a particular variant is uh, a fresh analysis of John seven fifty three through eight eleven. Also ninety nine cents on Amazon as a Kindle book. Also available for free if you contact me. And but um, equitable eclecticism is basically eclecticism that treats the Byzantine text fairly. Uh, in the area of Byzantium and really 
almost everywhere except Egypt, uh, there are fiscal conditions that that uh, that favor Egypt that don't favor everywhere else. Uh, Egypt has a very dry climate in some parts. It, part, partly it depends on the water level, but there are parts of Egypt where it's very, very dry, and papyrus just simply lasts a lot longer there. In other parts of the Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire, there were uh, lots of manuscripts in use, we know because they're, they're, they're mentioned, and we know because there were major churches out there, and they had their manuscripts, but they haven't survived. And uh, what equitable eclecticism does is it takes the picture as a whole, whereas we can say we have these manuscripts saying these things, but they're all representing one particular locale. And so as a representation of that particular locale, uh, that is a, a, a good um, sample. But that doesn't tell us necessarily what the text was like on the other side of the Roman Empire. It doesn't tell us what the text was like in, in northern Italy, what the text was like in Cappadocia. Or Cappadocia. It doesn't tell us what the text was like in Antioch or, or in North Africa. Uh, for those things, we have to look, look at uh, later evidence because all the papyri that were used there have simply rotted away. Um, to simply stress the earliest evidence, or the earliest manuscripts, rather, uh, just because they're, they're older is like saying, well, well, let's just pick the manuscripts from where the weather was better, because that's why they're the oldest. I see. Now, um, for those of you who are viewing live, we mentioned the blog, the blog site that James Snap has, and uh, I'm going to share the screen here with you. Um, up in the top right corner, he's got a tab for equitable eclecticism and this was this was written by James so you can access this you should be able to see it on the screen there uh, but it talks about the future of of New Testament textual criticism there uh, let me get back to our scene here so we can we can continue our conversation but um, kind of transitioning from what you um, just explained on uh, on what equitable eclecticism is the importance of it what what um, what constitutes what manuscripts survive versus what doesn't? Um, how do we how do we contrast that uh, with with what would be called the full textus receptus adherence? Well, the textus receptus uh, isn't really the same thing as as one of the early local texts of the church. In the early church, um, uh, uh, Streeter uh, back you know, decades ago uh, developed the idea of, of local text that uh, as the New Testament books circulated in the early church. There was no governing body to uh, centralize and standardize or, or to, to, to standardize the text. And so, in different locales, uh, once a, a form of the text had been uh, become, became unique to that area, um, that was you know, the text. That's what we call the Alexandrian text. The Alexandrian text, because even though we don't know exactly where it came from, it was used around Alexandria. Likewise, the uh, Byzantine text. Um, could have very well come from, from, from Antioch previously. John Chrysostom was in Antioch before he was in, in Constantinople. And, uh, but we know where it was used in, 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 in Byzantium, and so that's why it's called the Byzantine text. Likewise, the Western text uh, was used in the West, and so we don't know where it came from. Probably, maybe Egypt? But, um, but we call it the Western text, which is, I think, probably a, a nomenclature. Maybe we should call it the other Egyptian text. But the name has, has stuck as a matter of custom. And um, that's all early uh, localized forms of the text. The Textus Receptus is, is something else. Um, when Erasmus was uh, compiling his, his New Testament in the early 1500s, uh, he had 
some manuscripts there at the uh, monastery at Basel that had come from the library of John, John of Ragusa. And he also had, uh, besides those half a dozen or so manuscripts, he'd been studying manuscripts his whole life. Uh, uh, well, not, a, not from a baby, but basically his whole career. Uh, he had researched manuscripts. He'd studied the notes of a previous scholar, a uh, uh, very uh, Lorenzo Valla, uh, who, who's, who's hardly ever noticed when you hear about summaries of Erasmus' work. But it was, it was, he, he hasn't really gotten as much credit as he deserves, I think. But Erasmus was inspired by, by Valla to look into the text a lot more, and he had gone around uh, various people's collections. He'd 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 seen manuscript sixty nine in, in in England. He had seen Codex Aureus elsewhere. He uh, had a pretty good working knowledge of, of things. Here and there in the Textus Receptus, there's a reading that we don't know where it came from. It might have come from this manuscript or that manuscript, but it wasn't among those groups, the, the little group of manuscripts at, at, at Basel. But um, when he put his, his uh, compilation together and issued it, uh, that was the beginning of the Textus Receptus. And there's two ways you can define Textus Receptus. One is to say, well, if you look at the printed Greek New Testaments of the 1500s, all the way from Erasmus and the Complutensian Polyglot, that was the the, the other New Testament that was published, uh, actually print, printed uh, be, before the TR, before, before Erasmus, but not published until until after his first edition. But then, if you look also at uh, some some later uh, scholars who made their compilations, of course they they, they used uh, Erasmus's work, uh, refined it a little bit, tweaked a little bit, used some of their own research. Uh, uh, Stephanus's 1550 uh, edition is a, a major uh, TR edition, and then you have uh, a Beza uh, came along later, and his 1598 edition he made like five or six. I don't think even even he had a, a clear idea of exactly how many he made. But um, but uh, when the King James version was published uh, a couple of decades later in 1633, uh, some printers named the the Elseviers. Uh, issued a form of the text uh, that was that they declared to be the uh, the received text, and that's where the phrase the textus receptus comes from. The text that everybody recognizes the uh, as the Greek text. And um, when you look at the fine details, there are there are a few variations in there. Well, more, more than a few. Um, for instance, in, in Romans, uh, Stephanus might say in, in his edition. Uh, we are we, we are serving the Lord, but then it might, but, excuse me, but his edition might say serving the time, and uh, that's one one of the variants within the different editions of the Textus Receptus. But even though they're different and some of the fine points, uh, they are all basically the same text. Uh, that in, in in terms of its character, they would all be variations of that that core group that that Erasmus had assembled. And it never strays too far from what Erasmus had initially published. The uh, later scholars like Stephanus weeded out some of the uh, questionable decisions that Erasmus had made. Like in, in James chapter 4, verse 2, Erasmus had uh, considered uh, an emendation, and uh, that got weeded out. Uh, a few other things got weeded out. Typos, for instance, print, well, print errors, they didn't have typewriters yet. But pr printing errors got, got uh, filtered out. And so by 1633, you have some idea of this is what Erasmus was trying to make. And in, in 1633, they said, this is the received text. But really, you could take any one of those editions and say, well, this is basically the same edition of the text, the yep. TR. Another way to define it, though, is to just say the base text of the King James Version, New Testament. Uh, just take that and uh, look at what the 
the Greek base text would be for that, and call that the TR. So there's two ways to define it. So take your pick. I see. Yeah, so um, I actually, this is where you and I would differ. I, I, I hold to the TR position, and uh, we would have some differences there, which maybe at some point, if, if we get there, we could, we, we'd be able to iron out some of those differences. I don't know if we will. I don't know if that's really the, the point of this particular podcast. I don't believe it is, but um, why don't you take a second to, to do the same with the Nestle Elan adherence um, compared to equitable eclecticism, just like you did with the Textus Receptus view. If you could just kind of run us through that. Well, the TR has one advantage over the over the Nestle Island uh, compilations because the, the TR is uh, historically stable. We can look back and say that was the TR. You can get a printed copy of it and say that it is the TR. But uh, the Nestle Island text is a is a from day one, it has been a work in progress. And if you pick up an Islam today, the and, and look in the preface, you'll see that it says this is not a definitive text. This is this is a, a work in progress. It shouldn't be shouldn't be considered definitive, even though it often is treated as if it's definitive. The editors have never said this is the text. Um, and part of the reason for that is that nobody wants to say this is the text, and then and a few days later, somebody says, oh, we just found half a dozen new manuscripts from Egypt. Now we're going to have to. Go back to the books and, and uh, see how they fit in the apparatus. Uh, now, with all the papyrus discoveries that have been made in the past hundred years, uh, no new reading has been adopted into the Nestle Allen text. That's probably because the Nestle Allen text, uh, from its uh, origination, way, way back more than a hundred years ago, was based heavily on the Westcott-Hort text. Uh, Westcott and Hort, um, and... Uh, I just kind of refer to Hort, even though I include both Westcott and Hort in the picture. But Hort had proposed that the Byzantine text, even though it's been represented in the in the TR, basically uh, Revelation is kind of a special case. But in Matthew through through Jude, through Jude, uh, basically it's Byzantine. But um, Hort proposed that the text that was used in the Byzantine Empire, which was the standard text for most of the manuscripts, and by most I mean more than eighty-five percent probably 90, 95% in some cases. That, he said, was an official text that didn't exist until about the year 300. He proposed that if you take out all of the Byzantine text unique readings, it basically looks like it's a, an amalgamation, a combination of two earlier text types, the Western text and the Alexandrian text. Now, Ho didn't call them the, 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 the Alexandria text, uh, Alexandria, he called it the, the neutral text. But um, that was a bit of spin. So uh, no, nowadays we just say hey, it, it's it's just the Alexandrian text. But um, Hort's big idea that made uh, a jump ahead from, from using the TR was that he proposed that the Byzantine text was, like I said, an, an amalgamation that had been made so that anything that's unique in there uh, really doesn't have a right to be there. It's It's just considered... No, something that they came up with to solve a problem when they were putting the text together back around the year 300. Now, who is the they that made it? Uh, Hort would say, we don't really know, but maybe it was Lucian of Antioch. And so that's why this idea of his, this his one of his foundational theories was called the Lucianic Recension. It's like, it might be Lucian of Antioch, it might not be, but somebody uh, made this text and it instantly became popular in Antioch, then it became popular in Constantinople, and that became the dominant text throughout the Greek-speaking world. Um, and that's where we get all the uh, Byzantines, Byzantine min miniature manuscripts that we have today. 
Now, it, can, do you mind if I interrupt you there for just a second? Um, yeah. On that point, uh, I think it's important. That's that's a huge topic right there. And uh, I, I think it's important to point out or at least get your take on it. Uh, it seems that it's still kind of a, a split um, a split on whether or not uh, most scholars would even adhere to the Lucianic recension, um, even today. So what's your, what, what would be your take on that? Is, is there any credibility to it? If you read some of the online essays by Dan Wallace and some of the works of, of Philip Comfort, it looks like they're still taking it for granted. It looks yeah. like they're still you know, eating the, uh, the, the meal that Hort has prepared and cooked for them. Yeah. Uh, there are many people in, in uh, Germany that would say, uh, no, however it happened, it wasn't a recension, it was something else. Right. And uh, I, would, I would say that if you look at the papyri that, that Hort didn't know about, so it's not really Hort's fault that he didn't, didn't see the evidence because he couldn't see the evidence because right. it hadn't been dug up out of the sands of Egypt yet. But Hort wouldn't have proposed the same theory that he proposed if he had had the papyrus evidence that we have today simply because in the early papyri, like, like P, P45, um, there are readings that aren't Alexandrian, and they're not Western, they're Byzantine. At least they agree with the Byzantine text. So there are things that Hort had said in his writings, in his 1881 introduction, that he wouldn't say, that he couldn't say, and be taken seriously, uh, regarding the Byzantine text. He, would, he just wouldn't have done it if he if he'd known then what we know now, as far as what the early readings mean. That doesn't mean the whole Byzantine text is that ancient, but it means that there's certainly at least a layer of it that goes back very far. Now, and, and we'll get into this conversation, kind of pick it up when we get into uh, the CBGM, um, some of the results that, that they are finding when it comes to the Byzantine text uh, versus what what is now kind of being even rejecting the, the different text type families um, and saying, if, if you really if you really are going to look at text types and, and families of, of texts, um, that you can't really look at them as, as a family. They're all individual, except for this Byzantine text type. It seems to be that this would be the only category that we can put into a, a, a particular family or text type um, category itself. But why don't we look at, just for a minute, um, while we're in this conversation, some of the concerns that, that you would have with the Nestle Allen um, adherence. Well, Nestle, like I said, is is based very closely on Westcott and Hort's compilation, and the compilation was based on the theory of the Lucianic recension. Take away that foundation of the Lucianic recension, and you have this glaring question, which is, where does the Byzantine text come from, and how old is it? Yeah. Hort's working method was to say, anything that's unique in the Byzantine text, we're just going to set that aside as a matter of course. Um, without the Lucianic recension in the equation, that needs to completely be rethought. And historically, um, th there's really only one way to explain the Byzantine text, or at least uh, the, the, uh, the ancient layer of it. Uh, some, of the some of the unique readings in it can be explained as uh, a str stratification, I think is, would, would be a, ter a term that would probably come up a, a lot in, in my, t my talk about the uh, Byzantine text, because it was used as the official text, and that meant that it was, was used. And in the course of being used, it got modified into the uh, lectionary use, usage, or the, or the lection cycle. Before there were lectionaries, there was this lection cycle. And so when you're using a text to read and study, you're not going to treat it quite the same as when you're using it 
to read in a worship service. In a worship service, when Jesus shows up in a text and you've started off reading that passage by itself, you don't want the passage to say, he said, you want your people, the people you're reading through to know who he is, and so you'll right. say Jesus. And so there are little uh, liturgical modifications like uh, saying a proper noun when the text that you're reading might say he. Uh, you would begin by saying, at that time, Jesus said this to his disciples, or things like that. Little little beginning phrases and also closing phrases that would, that would come into the text. Um, and didn't have a, a colossal impact, but it did have some impact on it. Uh, meanwhile, um, like I said, back back to the question of where the text came from. The um, after the uh, the persecutions, either this text all of a sudden just appeared from from uh, from, from one edition that nobody had ever seen. It would and it was just a uh, the, the bishops would have had to say, oh, we don't have a text, but oh, here's this one. The bishops were kind of vigilant when it came to the meaning of their text. Uh, Martian, the, uh, the 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 heretic. Uh, in, the, in the second century, had already uh, challenged the, the, the church on, in, in that regard, and the bishops were very, very uh, watchful to make sure that uh, these uh, corruptions from Martian didn't influence the meaning of their text. And uh, they wanted the meaning of the text to, to be very clear. That's why you might say, well, the pronoun, he, versus the name, Jesus, well, well it just makes it more clear. And so some of the corruptions that we see are simply matters of making the text meaning that much more obvious to the reader. Sometimes that can be a good thing uh, when you have you know, a question like, well, what does that mean? Or what this, this word is old-fashioned. Can we update it to something that we understand? Yeah. Sometimes, though, a person might think he knows what it means and make the change and uh, not really grasp the actual meaning of it. So yeah. so it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. But okay. uh, my point is, though, that uh, the bishops of, of the church, say, in the 300s and 400s, uh, are very unlikely to have just grabbed a text out of nowhere that had all these little additions and some big additions that they'd never seen before just because they liked the way it sounded. Yeah. Uh, there were all kinds of stories about Jesus uh, that we don't see being just thrown into the text. Uh, Mark 16, you know, Jesus is talking about drinking poison and handling and picking up snakes. Do you think the bishops would have just said, oh yeah, that sounds good, just just throw it in there. Yeah, nobody, right, right, Nobody's right. going to object. So, uh, so some of the horse ideas to say, well, the, the bishops just, they, they saw these additions and, and, they, and they liked them, and so they put them on in there. Augustine, uh, even though I think he's wrong about this, uh, says that lots of people didn't like the story of the woman caught in, caught in adultery. So the idea that people would just see a story and just throw it into the text of one of the Gospels, one of the four Gospels, instead of just letting it circulate on its own, uh, seems rather unlikely. The, uh, the alternative is that the, the people in Cappadocia, in, in Greece, and in Syria simply kept on perpetuating the text that had been handed down to them, yep. which would make the Byzantine text have just as much credibility, just as much antiquity as the rival localized texts. Now, that's good. So now when we're talking about equitable eclecticism and, and, and really the, the equal value of different manuscripts and you, in, in regard to... Um, the comment that you just made that we do recognize, and uh, historically Christianity has recognized corruptions in the text, how does that conversation kind of relate between the two when we're talking about equal value and we're talking about corruptions? Um, where does the conversation go from there? Well, not all manuscripts are equal. You'll, you'll often hear the 
from, and especially from uh, advocates of the, the Nusslan text, that um, manuscripts must be weighed and not counted, which on one hand is true. Obviously, a manuscript that has readings that we've never seen before, and it's from the 1400s, uh, versus a manuscript from the 300s that is backed up by, uh, by one of the ancient versions. Clearly, the older... Um, the, the, the phrase, the older the better, sometimes it's, it is a, a dangerous oversimplification, yeah. but there is a level on which antiquity is one of the things you're looking for when you want to defend or argue for a reading. You look for ancient attestation, whether in a manuscript or a version or, or some patristic quotation. So antiquity is, is, is always good, but uh, that doesn't mean that antiquity, uh, the, the age of a reading, uh, makes it the right reading. Uh, we can look at the papyri and find a oodles of nonsense readings. So. I see. Okay, now let's talk about the concerns when it comes to um, some of the doctrines that could or could not be affected uh, within the NA um, adherence or the TR adherence. It, does doctrine actually, is, is it actually affected? Because so, so often you hear uh, about the authority of the scriptures, you hear about um, um, how we would believe that, that the Bible is pure, it's been kept pure in all ages, and, and we have these sort of conversations, but um, everyone typically would say, no, doctrine is not affected, uh, and others would say, yeah, absolutely, doctrine is affected by some of the, the differences between these texts. Wh where does the conversation go when it comes to um, how these differences within the different text types uh, are related to doctrine in itself? Well, there's a, the, the first doctrine that I would say we should look at when we say, is, is doctrine affected by textual variance? Um, Dan Wallace usually uh, puts things very carefully when he uh, describes this, this subject. And he says, no cardinal, cardinal doctrine of the church has been affected. And uh, that usually gets oversimplified so that uh, by, by the time that gets trickled, trickled down, uh, the average apologist will just say, oh, yeah, those those readings aren't important as far as doctrine. No, no Christian doctrine is affected by, by textual variance. Well, first of all, the uh, the textual variant involved has to be uh, meaningful and uh, viable or viable. And uh, that means there has to be at least a chance for it to be original, like uh, finding some wild sit-ins, very garbled in some 15th century manuscript, uh, that has no chance of being originally. A, a singular readings are almost always uh, rejected as a matter, matter of course. Um, and, and in fact, uh, Alan, Alan, Alan uh, that was one of their, their uh, proposals. It's not followed anymore, but that was one of the things that they proposed, that the singular readings, readings that are only supported by a single manuscript, uh, almost certainly are, are wrong, are, are corruptions. But um, in the Alexandrian text, uh, some things to consider. Uh, Mark Mark uh, six six twenty two, I believe, would be would be one case where was was um was was Mark uh, telling the truth about who Herod, who was married to whom um, when it says about the uh, the daughter of Herodias, um, or does it say about the daughter of Herodias? In the Byzantine text, uh, the dancer who comes out and dances for Herod. Uh, is the daughter of Herodias. That's what Matthew says as well. But in Mark, in the Alexandrian text, it seems to say that uh, this uh, dancer was the, the daughter of Herod's, Herod's own daughter. And I think if you look in the, the New Revised Standard Version, you'll, you'll see, if you look at the text and you look at the footnotes, it's, it's 
not describing the same person two different ways. It's describing uh, two different relationships. They can't both be right. So uh, that would be one area where if Mark says it's this person's daughter and Matthew says it's this person's daughter, how do you how do you work through that? That'd be uh, one one thing to look at. Uh, another thing would would be um, when when it comes to some of the the ge geographical names, um, Origen mentioned in his, one of his writings that uh, wow the names of my manuscripts they're messed up, and uh, I think certainly he was right because when we look at names that's that's one area where uh, it, it gets really hairy really fast when it, when it comes to these specific names like a was it Gergesa, was it Gadara, was it Gerasa? Um, if, if it's you know, this far away from the Sea of Galilee, those pigs got an awful long marathon to run. <laughs> I think that's a, that's, a, that's a way of describing that I think some uh, TR advocates have, have uh, pointed out that um, there are some, 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 some problems, some things that make what, what is an easy thing to explain in the Byzantine text becomes a much harder thing to explain in the Alexandrian text. Now, with enough creativity... It can be done, but uh, I mean, for, for instance, you could say, "Well, the Gadarenes—they might have had a province that was close to the Sea of Galilee. We've got coins. We've got coins, and uh, and, and things like that." But small problems in the Byzantine text become bigger problems in the Alexandrian text. One of the biggest problems is in Matthew 27 verse 49, and uh, you won't notice this because it's not pointed out in Bible footnotes usually, but. Uh, it, when it talks about the ending of the Gospel of Mark, it says our, our, our earliest and best manuscripts are the most reliable manuscripts so don't have these last 12, 12 verses. But those same two manuscripts, Vaticanus and Synaticus, both have this verse in Matthew twenty-seven forty-nine, and yet the footnote writers have selectively not mentioned it because they only want the reader to see what they want the reader to see. And if they went around saying, oh, yeah, the earliest and best manuscripts, they have this verse here in Matthew 27, 49, uh, people would say, well, I'm not going to trust that. Because in Matthew 27, 49, it says that Jesus, as he was crying out, uh, one of the uh, men who was close by, another person uh, came with a spear and pierced his side and blood and water flowed out before he died. Now, if you look over in, in John, uh, the whole narrative about Jesus being speared and blood and water coming forth, um, that's all happens after he's dead. So there's this chronological uh, puzzle there, and um, I invite uh, advocates of the Alexandrian text just to uh, explain to us, how do you figure this out? Um, how do you have Jesus being speared and blood and water coming forth before he dies and after he dies? Because John clearly says this was after he died. Yeah. But... Uh, so if you hear him being speared and the blood and water detail, um, before he died, after he died, um, even even advocates of the Alexandrian text, they look at that and say, well, I guess the Alexandrian text is wrong in that particular place. But but they but uh, how do they get into the Alexandrian text? Uh, that's where different folks will have different ideas. Yeah. But that, that, but on that point though, if the if the excuse me, if the Alexandrian text were to be accepted, then you'd have a uh, a contradiction you have an error in the text the Alexandrian text as it stands not how it's not how after it's not how it's compiled but as it stands in the manuscripts if you had a if you had a, a translation that was simply based on the flagship manuscripts of the Alexandrian text on Vaticanus and Synaticus it would be an errant text so I you see. think inerrancy is an important doctrine 
then you can't say that important doctrines are not are not affected by doc, by textual variance. Yeah. So the conversation would have to go from inerrant to authoritative. Now let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the Byzantine priority. Um, if if you would like to kind of give um, the stratification in the Byzantine text textual barnacle, some of those different things that you've written out on on, on your blog site, and uh, just touch on that for us if you would. Well, uh, Byzantine priority um, is simply the idea that the Byzantine text. Uh, is always right. It, it um, statistically, you could say, well, you've got lots of Greek manuscripts, but in theory, statistically, if you were to say we start out with a perfect text and it goes in all directions, you could say that you might have a a diversion here or a diversion there, but those show diversions because they're in the minority. The uh, majority text has the uh, the advantage because it's simply what gets copied the most. If you have different independent lines of of copying, uh, you you would let's see if I can make an illustration that wouldn't involve a, a spider web. If you could picture a, a tree uh, with different branches, and the branches go this way and that way, then some 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 somewhere along the line, a, a, a tree grafter. Uh, comes along and says, you know, this is a great orange tree, but I, I want some lemons on it. So he takes a little branch of lemon and splices it on and grafts it the way that that can be done. And somebody else then comes along later and says, oh, look, it's a lemon tree. And the other person says, no, it's an orange tree. Well, how do you find out if it's a lemon tree or an orange tree? Uh, usually you would say, well, it's got you know, 20 branches on it, and they all got oranges and that one branch has a lemon clearly the lemon is the the non-original part simply being in the majority has the advantage of implying what is original uh, and a person could also look in uh, the Byzantine text uh, in here and uh, look at uh, Morris Robinson's essay on the case for for Byzantine priority uh, and, and it's also uh, distributed all over the place on the on the internet just look for Morris Robinson's name, uh, yeah. and he makes the a case for for Byzantine priority there. I I don't subscribe to it, but uh, that's uh, what what his his thoughts about it. What what we're reading. I see. Um, so what would be uh, just kind of the difference between the Byzantine um, priority versus uh, equitable eclecticism? What's what's what would be some of the differences there? Well, I would treat the Byzantine text as a for for the most part, no overall. As as a localized form of the text, but not necessarily not necessarily a, a localized form of the text that is always right mm -hmm. um, in, in matters of spelling and matters of things that were susceptible to liturgical uh, variation, things that were written in there to clarify things that might be puzzling to some readers. Um, you, you'd have to consider the the whole picture in those cases. Really, really, uh, I should say every case because every case can be a special case. But um, in Byzantine priority. Uh, an argument is is made for every single reading uh, go, goes back to this original Byzantine archetype, whereas I would say historically um, we need to consider the reasons why the text is not you know, more well well rounded um, in, in terms of its geography. It's not because people stopped reading the Bible. It's because of other factors that came into play. 
the, the Greek manuscripts don't give us the whole picture. Uh, we have a majority of Greek manuscripts, but we have even more uh, Latin manuscripts. That doesn't make, make the, uh, you, you can make a case for Vulgate um, priority, but uh, you would have to hit the uh, historical reality that says, well, the Vulgate is clearly uh, boils down to echoes of Jerome and th things that came along and mixed in with what Jerome had, had made. Yeah. So uh, you, you're basically arguing from number. And when you argue from number, you need to take in all the numbers. Um, we have a certain number of Greek manuscripts, but they had manuscripts in Egypt. Mm. They had manuscripts in, in, the, in the West. They had manuscripts in Armenia. Uh, what happened was they just got translated into other languages. Yeah. So it's not, you don't, you're not getting the whole picture when you consider, well, what's the majority? What's, what's the Byzantine text? You can reconstruct that pretty well. But that's not going to give you the whole historical picture because you have all these other areas that aren't being represented in that. And the reason why they're not represented is because they're not Greek anymore. They stopped using Greek mainly and switched to other languages. Sometimes in one step, sometimes in multiple steps, sometimes very slowly. But uh, only by considering the whole picture will you get a, a real idea of, of how, how broad the evidence is. Okay, you, so you know, that's, that that's is a huge point to me. Um, and, and I think that one that deserves a little bit more attention when it comes to some of the different translations in other languages that that would predate a lot of the manuscripts that we that we have today and and, and we now have more manuscripts than than we ever have uh, in the past when when the conversation of textual criticism is is what it is today so the the, the point that I have it's I know it's not in our notes that that we're looking at but the the, the question that I've got in relation to what you just discussed was um, how important sh is the conversation of uh, taking into account these different translations when we're looking at at the text? I mean, because you may not have a, a Greek manuscript to, to support what is in uh, a version that predates any of the manuscripts that we've got, and, and to say, well, where did they get it from? Well, um, where does the conversation go there? Because that's about the, the limit of where my knowledge goes in that particular conversation. One of the principles of equitable eclecticism is that no reading is adopted into the text without Greek attestation. Okay. So what the Nestle Allen text has done in Acts 16.12, what the Nestle Allen text has done in, in, in uh, 2 Peter 3.10, yeah. uh, those readings would be automatically precluded because they don't have Greek support. Um, now, back in the 1500s, it was not considered all that ridiculous to propose conjectural emendations. And that's basically what's, what they're doing there. Yep. Uh, I say basically because these were the, but the Coptic version, you know, the Harkley and Syriac, well, that's <laughs> still not Greek. Yeah. But, okay. um, but, but back in the 1500s, uh, like I said, Erasmus proposed a, a, a reading in James 4.2 that didn't have Greek support. Uh, Beza proposed some, some readings that don't have Greek support. Like uh, in Matthew 28, there's an interesting one where, uh, you know, manuscripts, it says the disciples, uh, they saw him and, uh, it, and, and some doubted uh, in right. Matthew 28. Uh, basically thought, you know, you know, if you just change that T to a D and you and you divide the words, and you you, you could say, but what Matthew wrote was, and they did not doubt. Yeah. So so okay. uh, so so basically had these ideas, but again, these got filtered out in in, in the course of uh, cooperative works, and yeah. um, but but in equitable eclecticism, you might get minority readings definitely, but never a reading that does not have Greek support. So we're kind of laying the foundation for the different text types that uh, the translations that we have come from and uh, where value should or shouldn't be placed, where value is and where value isn't placed based off of some of these differences. 
Um, but before we get into what everyone likes to talk about or the actual variants themselves and and uh, who's right, who's wrong, let's, let's take just a second to continue that foundation and talk about um, the importance of um, the scope of attestation. And, uh, then, and, and then just to touch on that before we get into the first variant, um, why it could or couldn't be reckless to simply trust the oldest manuscripts. I know you've, you've mentioned it uh, before, um, but if you could just take a second to kind of touch on those two points for us. All right. Well, um, scope of attestation uh, simply means how, how many branches of the tree have this kind of fruit on it, or is it just are we, are we just emphasizing one branch? Uh, and, and that's easy to do in two directions. You could take the Byzantine branch, which by far has the most fruit on it, but there are lots of other branches on the tree. And um, or you could also look at the Alexandrian branch and say, well, it doesn't have very many fruit, but look how old this branch is. It goes way back. It's way, it's, it, this yeah. is close to the bottom of the trunk. And so um, scope of attestation means looking at the early localized forms of the text. Uh, you could say, well, what was the reading in Egypt? And when we look at the papyri, that's pretty much what we're looking at, because that's where the papyri come from. And um, what was the, but what was the uh, reading, say, where Irenaeus was? What was the reading where the old Latin version right. or versions were? were made. What was the reading uh, later on uh, in, in Armenia, uh, which was based on, based on a, what's called the, the Caesarean text? We basically look at these uh, locales, and when a reading has support from different locales, it might not be the majority reading in terms of number of manuscripts, but we can see how, how broad its uh, attestation is in ancient times. Uh, knowing that there are you know, more manuscripts made after the year 1000 in favor of a certain reading is not as powerful an argument as saying we know that in the year 300 or in the year 350 or in the year 400, this reading was attested in Ireland and France and Spain and Italy and southern Italy and Sicily and Palestine and Cappadocia and Armenia. You know, ha ha having that range of attestation, uh, that's where the argument for, uh, for, for the... Uh, branches of the tree uh, really has a powerful effect. I see. Okay, now let's take everything that we've just talked about uh, with the foundation leading up to um, um, what the weight is, what the numbers are, the, the scope of attestation when it comes to Mark 16 verses 9 through 20, the ending of Mark. So really the conversation goes to uh, wh what, was, what did Mark actually write? What, what is scripture? What is canon when it comes to this particular passage? Uh, is it the longer ending? Is it the shorter ending? And uh, if you could just take a second um, to give us your analysis on, on whether or not this is, this, is, this is the word of God or if it's uh, just something that got, got added in there and at some point people adopted it as scripture when it never really was. Okay. Well, as a, a to introduce that, though, could, could could I answer the other part of the, your other question about about the why is it reckless to simply trust the the older manuscripts? I hadn't, I hadn't quite yes, gotten to that. Please, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> See, look at that. I mean, you just gotta you gotta correct me. <laughs> yeah. But but it, it kind of goes together with that other point about the scope of attestation. Um, we don't have Irenaeus's manuscripts, but we know that he had them. We don't have Justin's manuscripts, we know he had some. We don't have Tatian's manuscripts, and we don't have a copy of the, of the Diatessaron. But we know that he had them and that his work was pretty popular in some circles, especially in Syria. So um, when we consider the oldest manuscripts, again, we're basically asking, 
the manuscripts that have survived, which means basically Egyptian manuscripts. Uh, that to to appeal to the oldest manuscripts simply because they're older is just, is, is a is almost subterfuge against considering the range of evidence outside of Egypt, because oldest means the ones that lasted the longest, and that's the Egyptian manuscripts because of the weather, because it was dry. Yeah. And uh, when we look at the oldest manuscripts, uh, we don't always see the work of scrupulously meticulous scribes. You have uh, guys like Spiridon, who's mentioned in the uh, the uh, introduction to the uh, King James Bible, uh, Spiridon. Is a, a church father uh, who is is famous for being at a meeting where um, another bishop was telling a story from from the Gospels, and he and he and he made him he misquoted when in in the passage in the passage where where Jesus uh, turns to the man who, who whose friends are bringing in the paralytic, and the paralytic is there on this mat, and and uh, but by the time of Spiridon, the word for mat wasn't quite as popular. You no, know, sometimes words just just change like. Think of the word arcade. You know, right. It used to mean you know, part of a building, and then it used to be uh, where you find the Pac-Man game. But uh, word, words change, and, and some words become more popular than others in, in, in various locales. Well, at this particular meeting, there was this uh, other bishop, and he used a different word for Matt. And Spiridon stood up and said, that's not what he said. Use the right word. Yeah. Now, Spiridon's that meticulous that he would interrupt a meeting just, just because of this one little synonym being changed. And it doesn't even change the meaning, but he was careful to use the right word when you're quoting scripture. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, you have in the papyri some very unreliable looking scribes. Uh, Dirk Yankin has said, oh, they're not that bad. Uh, look at the scribe of P66. He's, 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 he's way out there. I wouldn't want him copying my stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so you have in, in Egypt, not everywhere in Egypt, and yeah, you got P75, pretty good. But... Um, you have some this this element where if you compare what would you start out with from from Codex A to get to the manuscripts of the 1400s or the 1300s, how much corruption would have to happen to get from here to here? In the Byzantine transmission line, not that much. But if you start out with the uh, the premises of the Nestle Island advocates and say, well, they started out with the Nestle Island text, take their assumption for a minute for the sake of argument. Say, if the Nestle Allen text is the original, how many mistakes would you have to make to get from the Nestle Allen text to the text of this papyri? You'd have to make all sorts of changes in very little time relatively to the, uh, to the, to the disciplined level of transmission that we see in the Byzantine transmission line. Yeah. So, uh, so that's a, just trusting the oldest manuscripts because they're older. That doesn't mean the scribes were more careful. That doesn't mean the text is better. You can put side by side a Byzantine manuscript from the, from the Middle Ages and a papyri from the 200s, put them together, and I have done this, and time after time, the medieval manuscript has the more accurate text, not only when it's compared to the Byzantine text as the standard, but when the Nestle Allen text is the standard of comparison. Yeah. Now, along those lines, let me ask you this question. It, it seems to me that the CBGM is really doing um, the groundbreaking work today on the text that, uh, that's going to affect um, where the text goes in the future. Um, now, my question to you would be, if, if you could have, one, one say Peter Gurry or Washerman watch this, if there's one message that you could get to these guys to take into consideration, what would that message be? Ah, uh, well, 
the CBGM is really complicated, but uh, I would ask them to uh, explain Galatians 425 using the CBGM and see what they do with that. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Let's uh, let's go into our first uh, variant in Mark 16, the longer ending versus the shorter ending, and uh, just get your take on that uh, when it comes to the text that is, is being used for our modern translations today. And uh, where, where, where does this conversation go when it comes to the longer ending versus the shorter ending uh, with terms like secondary or non-original, and uh, especially in the conversation of these older manuscripts versus Byzantine, all, the whole wide range of conversation when it comes to this particular passage, um, how would you take uh, the stance that this should or shouldn't be in the text? Well, I'd, I'd start by uh, challenging uh, something that a lot of apologists say they want um, when they say, well, when we do a textual criticism, we want what the original writer wrote. Well, if, if you take that too strictly, uh, your book of Psalms is going to get a whole lot shorter because David didn't write all those other Psalms. I mean, the, the Psalms titles say so. And, um, and and it's very clear that they don't all come from, from one author. We look at the book of Proverbs, likewise. That those aren't all from Solomon. The men of Hezekiah, you know, compiled some things. The last two chapters, this one's this chapter by this guy, this chapter by this by this. There's a redactor involved. And as a matter of course, in the Old Testament, uh, people will look, will look at books and say, well, yeah, this author made, made this big part here, but there's also this. Uh, look at Jeremiah, the last whole chapter. I mean, it says in the text, here is where the words of Jeremiah end, and yet you've got more text after that. And and that's, I it, all, all the translators out there seem to accept that just fine. They don't seem to have any problem with that. Jeremiah 52 is in all these translations, right? So um, so I think that's not really what they've been aiming for. If, if, if it is what they've been aiming for, then somebody should should let the, all these Bible uh, translators and publishers know uh, that the, the idea of uh, originality isn't a matter of who wrote what part of the text? It's a matter of what was in the autograph. Was uh, and, and this is how Dean Bergen uh, defined the parameters of the question back in the 1800s. Is this something that was in the autograph, or was it something that was added later in the course of the transmission stream? And so that, that's the, the terms on which I approach the subject. That because um, uh, I, I propose, uh, and, and this is all in my in my in my book that I mentioned, that uh, that Mark was was interrupted. And that's why we have chapter 16, verse 8, ending very, in this very unusual way. And that's also why we have verse 9 uh, restarting in this very unusual way. Uh, it doesn't look like Mark has uh, just decided to reintroduce Mary and re-mention the time of the day and, and uh, suddenly make uh, Mary's companion dis disappear. But what I propose as far as the ending of Mark is that Mark stopped writing at verse 8, but that was not where he intended to end. And his colleagues there in Rome, uh, they, they knew the story well enough that they knew that's not where he, he had wanted to end, but they didn't want to write anything of their own. They didn't feel feel, feel qualified to, to, to compose something, but they knew that Mark had written this other co composition, and so they put that on there as the conclusion to the narrative that Mark was telling, and that's where the last 12 verses are. So the idea is that that was an original part of the autograph, um, but not um, the uh, the natural, you, you can see there's not a natural flow there. Nevertheless, uh, if it's there, it's there. And later on in Egypt, somebody had recognized, or maybe on the way to Egypt, somebody had recognized, hey, uh, we've seen this before. This isn't Mark's story that he got from Peter. This is something that we've already seen from somewhere else. And so they removed it. Whereas okay. everywhere else except Egypt, it's there. Yeah, so you've got, um, there's, there's a lot that 
is entailed in what you just described there um, with the internal and the external evidence. But when we're talking about the, the, these, these particular points about uh, whether or not Mark stopped or there was, there was a pause there or whether it was added later, um, you're really you're referring to just a couple of manuscripts that, that don't have it in there. Is that right? Uh, that, that is uh, correct. As far as, far as Greek manuscripts go, um, there are only three that in the text at verse 8. And all three of them have uh, anomalous features. And uh, if you were to go to my blog and look for uh, Codex Vaticanus and the, end, and the ending of Mark, you would see a, a picture of Vaticanus. And I did an experiment uh, a few years back of, of uh, what if you took letters from that page of Vaticanus and rewrote the last 12 verses of Mark, would they fit in that blank space? And yeah. they do. It's a tight fit, but they fit. Yeah. Uh, also in Sinaiticus, um, now I would consider Sinaiticus probably a, about 25 years uh, older, excuse me, uh, uh, younger than, than Vaticanus. And I think what has happened is that when the, a scribe made Vaticanus, he wasn't sure what to do. He had a copy that ended at verse 8, and he was also aware of the closing tw 12 verses, and he wasn't sure if he could, should include them or not. So he said, I'm going to decide not to decide. I'm going to make it possible that if somebody wants to put these verses here, they'll be able to. And so he, he yeah. left intentionally that blank column where if the eventual owner of this uh, wants those 12 verses, he won't be able to yell at me because I'll be able to say, well, go ahead and put them in. I left space for him. Yeah. And so in, in, uh, in Vaticanus, you can see a, a, an expression of scribal indecision. Um, meanwhile, in, in Sinaiticus, uh, the, the uh, proofreader of Sinaiticus uh, made sure that those verses were, were not in there and that the blank space at the end of Mark couldn't be interpreted as an invitation to put them in. The, uh, the last pages of Mark and the opening pages of Luke in Codex Sinaiticus are not the work of the main copyist of the manuscript. The work of the the proofreader, and um, to make a long story short, um, when when Sinaiticus was made, it was a team effort. There was a, a, a scribe who wasn't very good. There was a scribe who was much better. There was another scribe, but um, but the proofreader scribe. Hold on a second. No, you're good. The proofreader scribe took the work of the main copyist and said, "There's a mistake here. This is not going to do." And he removed those four pages. And when I say four pages, I mean it's like a, one piece of parchment folded in the middle. And you're, you're talking about a codex, right? Yeah. A folio. But a folium. So you have four columns of text here, four columns of text here, four columns of text here, and four columns of text here. I see. And then you have like four of these together. Now, in this case, uh, the, the uh, folio just happened to be the, the, the middle one, so he didn't have to, like, rewrite this one and this one. It was, it was all on one piece of parchment. So um, Mark would end here. So you had Mark, text mark here, text mark here, and then you switch to Luke in these two columns, and this would be all of Luke. So you got Luke 1, th 1, through, 50, 1 through 76 uh, on these pages. So to fix a mistake, you'd have to rewrite you know, all four pages, or all the all, all the text that was on the whole sheet, because if you can't keep the the first copyist's work, you've got to got to replace it. And that's what we see when we go, when we come to Sinaiticus today. We're seeing the work of the proofreader. It's not the copyist that made the pages that come before. 
on the pages of the It's a different copy. You can tell by the way he spells. You can tell by the way he uses these little symbols on the side. And um, it's 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 not a disputed point. Uh, this is I had that, that on mute. That, but... uh, Chris Chris Blake pointed this out way back, and uh, ever since then, it's just confirmed it over and over again. These are not the main copyist work. They're part of the manuscript when it was made, but it's the work of the proofreader, the super. And when he was working, uh, and, and again, I have a page on the blog that, that goes into more detail about this, but just to summarize, um, he worked backwards because he's fixing probably a mistake somewhere in the text of Luke that he was concerned about, as if the uh, the main copyist had skipped a whole paragraph uh, and was just had just made this gap that was un unacceptable. So he's backwards writing, writing, writing Luke. Then, then after he's done writing the text from Luke, uh, he goes back to Mark, but then kind of loses track of what he's doing and starts to, to, to write it out in, in, in tighter letters like he had to, to, to in, in Luke. And if you could, would count the number of, of characters per column, you can see how this all works out. It's, it's on the blog. And um, then he gets to, to, to Mark, 16 verse 1, and he skips. And then, then uh, he had calculated how much do I need to end this up nice and clean-like, but because of that mistake, it doesn't end up clean. And he has a bigger space to work with than he wanted to have. And so after he turns the page and begins to write Mark 16, 2 uh, through 8, he stretches out his letters. And when he comes to Jesus' name, he writes it out longhand and, instead of using the, the scribal contraction that he would normally use to write a sacred name. Uh, and uh, so he's stretching out the text so that it will fit, so that there won't be room so that to leave a, a blank column like, like there was in Vaticanus. So, um, so you can tell that the, uh, the, the textual issue was definitely, definitely on the mind of the copyist of Vaticanus and was also on the mind of the copyist of Sinaiticus. Uh, but besides those two, two manuscripts, you also have evidence for the, the shorter ending. And by shorter ending, I don't mean the abrupt ending. Uh, the abrupt ending is just, you know, ending of the Gospel of Mark at the ending of verse 8. That's the abrupt ending. That's what we have in Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. But uh, there are six Greek manuscripts and uh, Persian manuscripts in Ethiopian, excuse me, Ethiopic, Argiz, and uh, other dialects of Coptic that have the shorter ending. That is, that, and that was part of Westcott and Hort's text. They, they, they double-bracketed it, but they made a note of it. And uh, in Codex L, it's it's in there, and uh, about six total Greek manuscripts, but lot but lots of like I said, Ethiopic and Baharic as well. And basically, that's from a time in Egypt where they had they they got the text of Mark without the last twelve verses, but they didn't like the text of Mark without those last twelve verses because it ends so abruptly. And yeah. so somebody somewhere along the line said, we, it can in that way. We we've, we've got to wrap wrap up the narrative." And so somebody composed the shorter ending. That's also called the alternative ending, and I, I want to be very clear on this point. That is the only alternative narrative besides the usual 12 verses. Uh, sometimes you'll, you'll see people uh, uh, spin the evidence to say, oh, they, were, they, they had like six or seven or eight or, or nine different endings of the Gospel of Mark floating around out there that people have just composed. No, that is simply false. There were two. Uh, one of them is testified by Irenaeus in the, in the, in the 200s. And by, and by over 1,600 manuscripts, that's, that's just kind of the Greek manuscripts, uh, 
I don't think any of this counted as how, how many Latin manuscripts there are because it's it's everywhere. It's in it's in books of hours. It, it's all over. But um, but that's the the, the longer ending versus ninth through twenty. That's one thousand six hundred manuscripts, and and I'm estimating here it's it's probably closer to one thousand seven hundred. Um, versus two, three manuscripts, and one one of them is manuscript three hundred four. And uh, just go to my blog and look for that one. And I got some information about that, which which probably needs to be updated, by the way, because Jonathan Borland is is doing some work on that, that that's yet to to be published. Um, when manuscripts get pigeonholed in museums, it's it's not the easiest thing to do to 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 work on in in, in detail. But um, we have Vaticanus, we have Sinaiticus. And we have the shorter ending that implies that somewhere out there, wherever the shorter ending came from, there was the abrupt ending before that. So it's like we can see this this stream, which the, the wherever the shorter ending pops up, we can safely assume that before that there was the abrupt ending. So you could basically say where these Greek manuscripts were that have the the shorter ending before that they must have had the abrupt ending. The thing is, those manuscripts that that uh, Show any signs of where they came from that, that have the the shorter ending in the text. Uh, manuscript uh, two seventy four has it in the margin, but the ones that have it in the text show clear signs that they're all basically the same edition of the text. And uh, and the details on that are in my book. But uh, the way they format the shorter ending and the longer ending and the little notes that they have that are shared by a, a Coptic uh, lectionary uh, very clearly show that these are all from the same locale. So you have this locale in Egypt that are represented by Sinaiticus and, and Vaticanus in, in Mark that uh, imply the uh, shorter ending either by having, excuse me, that imply the, the abrupt ending, either by having the abrupt ending, as, as two of them do, or by having the, the shorter ending, as, as six of them do. But um, that's still just one locale. Everywhere else, I mean, all the way from, from Ireland to Georgia, you've got, you've got early instances of attestation for the usual 12 verses that's good so you did that in about 10 minutes and i've got to applaud you on that so you just uh, talked about mark 16 the longer ending versus the shorter ending and uh, for those of you who are watching i recommend go buy that book it's only a dollar on kindle you can have all, all of the information um, in that book so um, thank you for putting that out there i've got to give you guys a little bit of a caveat um, i am home alone watching my two twins and if you saw me kind of looking around and being distracted, that's because uh, my daughter just woke up. And uh, so I put a screen in front of her. She's watching YouTube Kids right now. So we'll see how long that lasts. If my son wakes up, uh, we might just have to end it. But I don't know. Maybe we could come back at some point. I don't know. That's kind of the, the, the bad part about um, doing these things uh, when, <laughs> when you've got, when you got young kids. But that's just part of it. It's, it is what it is. But let's take a second, if we could, and uh, look at... Um, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 7, and uh, we've got an, a, a ton of different variants that we can look at, um, but, but you've got the big three, the woman caught in adultery, the longer ending versus shorter ending of Mark, and then you've got the comma UNAM in 1 John 5, 7. And uh, I don't know, where, where would you like to go from here? Do you want to look at the woman caught in adultery, or how do you want this conversation to kind of go um, from yeah. this point? Uh, I'd like to tie you a couple of loose ends with, with, with Mark, and, okay. and then we can talk about the woman called an adultery. But, uh, but there's also what's uh, called the Freologion, yeah. and sometimes this is uh, described as, oh, there's another ending, the Freologion. But uh, when you look at the Freologion, uh, Joe, uh, just, uh, Jerome mentions it in one of his writings around the year uh, 415, and he says, oh yeah, I found this 
especially in Greek codices. And, um, and it's between verses 14 and 15 of, of Mark 16. And uh, Metzger says, well, this is probably just a, 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 this is an interpolation that was put in there uh, by somebody in the second or third centuries, uh, which um, right there, we, we've uh, just added in as many manuscripts for uh, Mark uh, 16, 19-20 as we have today without it. Um, not, not even considering all the manuscripts that are quoted by early church fathers, uh, like Irenaeus, and, uh, well, and they're going to just say, uh, to save time, they'll have to say, there's over 40 of them while there's a Roman emperor sitting on a, a, a throne. Um, during the time of the Roman Empire, I, there's more than 40 patristic references, clear references, to the longer ending of Mark, to Mark 16, 19, 20. And so uh, people will sometimes say, but Erasmus said this. Well, Erasmus was speculating. He did that a lot. And uh, if you look in detail at what Erasmus said, instead of just, you know, Taking a little snippet here and there, look, look in detail at what it said. The, the book is published. Uh, Rod, Roger Pierce has put it online for free. You can look at Erasmus's composition um, to, to, to Marinus and, and see, that, see what Erasmus says. You can see later on in the same composition, Erasmus quotes Mark 69 once he says, as it says in some manuscripts, but another time he says, he just quotes it just like yeah. that. Okay. So, uh, and also with Jerome, um, Jerome was kind of a plagiarist uh, that, that we, we, we would say <laughs> yeah yes bro you, you you thief you just stole that from Ara from, from eusebius um I, th I think i've got my erasmus and eusebius mixed up there for a maybe second. his life verse is freely give freely receive well well erasmus thought well better for me to copy him out and they'll, then they'll be my respectable writings than for these older writers to get condemned and they'll just not be copied anymore so he didn't mind copying whatever he could copy. Yeah. And he copied some of Eusebius' stuff. And if you put Eusebius' composition here, and you put Jerome's composition here, you can see that it's the same work for, 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 for some extent. Not, not the whole thing, but, but for some extent, Jerome is just summarizing and rephrasing in Latin the same thing that Eusebius said in Greek. So it's not like, oh, Jerome is this independent voice over here. No, he's just echoing what Eusebius had written. So th th there's no way in Jerome's time that only a few manuscripts had Mark 69-20 because you can look at the quotations of dozens of people around Jerome right. that were quoting it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's important, I think, to uh, consider consider um, what, what some of the early church fathers, what they're quoting from, um, and, and to see if they actually had access to it or not. But let's go ahead and jump into uh, the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. One of the most popular stories in all of the Bible. Um, something that so many people uh, would say, yeah, it needs to be in there. Others would say it doesn't. I'm going to let you run with that. So um, where do we go from right. there? Well, if, you, if all you have to do is to, to go on is Metzger's textual commentary, then you would probably wonder why in the world would anybody think the story of the adulteress belongs in the Bible? I mean, look at this. It's it's not in the those respectable old manuscripts. It's not commented on by Chrysostom and these other writers. And but most of all, most of all this is the point that James White will often raise. Uh, it it moves around. Clearly, this is a sign that it was a floating anecdote that was just wandering around like a butterfly, trying to find a place to land. And it eventually 
perched in the Gospel of Mark, and people liked it, and so they threw it in there. But sometimes they liked it at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and sometimes they liked it over in the Gospel of Luke. And that clearly shows that it was just this story that was floating around that John had nothing to do with. And um, so if you read Metzger or if you read James White, um, that's probably going to be your impression. And if that's all you read, it's, it's going to seem pretty persuasive. Unless you realize that there was a lection cycle in the early church. And we don't have lectionaries from the early church, so it's not like we can go, go back and, and, and look in on the, the church service to see exactly what it was like and, and where, it was, where it was this way and where it was that way. But, um, but we know from the book of Acts that Pentecost was celebrated very early. That's, that's what they're celebrating there in Acts chapter 2. And in the Byzantine lectionary, uh, and by lectionary I just mean the, 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 the lectionary is just a book of readings, but they're not in the same exact order as we find them in a copy of the Gospels. It's the, like, this is the reading for this day, this is the reading for that day. And so it's like uh, having a devotional reading and some devotion books. You know, I have read this for this, this day, read this for that day. And that's what a lectionary would be like, basically. And um, But in the uh, annual cycle of readings, the reading for Pentecost is Luke, excuse me, is, is John uh, 7, uh, 37, let me just look it up. 47, 47, I got it right. If, if, if I don't have it right, some, somebody correct me. But um, 747, 30, somewhere in John 7. Uh, got, a, got, a, got a brain freeze for a 53. No, 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 it's, it, it's earlier than that. It's, uh, uh, what was it that you were, what are you referencing there? I just had to look at this up for a second. So, sorry, folks, uh, technical difficulties. <laughs> hey, it happens. 37, yeah, 37. Okay, uh, we, we, we can edit all that out there. But uh, John 7.37, the Pentecost lection starts because Jesus is describing the coming of the Holy Spirit. It, it fits very well with the theme of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. But then something comes along in the narrative that doesn't fit very well with the theme of, of Pentecost, which is the story of the woman called in adultery. And uh, in verse uh, 53, excuse me, verse 52, uh, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has risen or shall arise uh, out, of, out of Galilee. And then in the in the uh, Pentecost lection, uh, they would jump, they would skip all of John 7:53 through 8:11, and then they would close the reading with chapter 8, verse 12. Now I am the light of the world. So um, that's the basic shape of the Pentecost reading that is still read in the Byzantine lectionary. And if you pick up any. Byzantine lectionary manuscript, that's, and, and turn to Pentecost, that's the reading that you will see. Well, you can imagine if a lector's copy was used by a scribe as his master copy. So picture, picture a professional copyist, a person who's not familiar with what the Christians do in their churches, and all he has to go on is a copy of the Gospel of John, and he's told, here you go, make a copy. So he sees this copy, and he's writing it down very faithfully, very carefully. He's a professional. And um, he gets to John chapter 7, 53. And at the beginning of the verse, he sees this little note in the side margin that says, skip from here down to here. And so it says, like, jump forward there at verse 52 at the end. It says, jump down. And then at, at verse 12, it says, resume here. Now, what he's reading are notes not for him. Those notes are for the lector, the person who does the reading in the church service. He, the lector, was supposed to, on Pentecost, 
jump down from the end of verse 52 and finish the lection, finish the reading for the day, at verse 12 of chapter 8. That's what the lector was supposed to do, and when he saw those notes in the margin, he knew that's what you do on Pentecost. But the copyist didn't know that. And so he thinks when he's making his copy, that's what I'm supposed to do. So that's what he does. And just like that, those 12 verses are lost in that particular line of transmission. And that must have been a, a very influential line of transmission because it affected quite a few manuscripts. It affected the Peshitta later on. It, it affected the uh, entire uh, Alexandrian branch of transmission and, and most of the versions that, that came from that area. Um, and, we, and we see uh, the story, though, in, in, in Latin very early. Um, oftentimes we say, well, the early manuscripts don't have the story of the adulteress. Really? What about the old Latin manuscripts? Because if you look at the old Latin, there's pretty strong support for it. But not only that, when you look at the old Latin, there is um, there, there what was called the uh, the capitulum, and uh, this was uh, the the old old Latin uh, manuscripts. Uh, for some reason, in the West, people like their manuscripts with uh, with flourish. So instead of having just the text of the gospel, you have okay, we're gonna study this thing. We, want, we, we don't just want a Bible. We want a study Bible. And so before a book, you would have a, a summary of who wrote the book and what each little chapter was about. And you could vary how you would divide up the chapters, but they would describe what was in the segments of the text part by part. And these, these, uh, these, these briefs, our, our capitulum, um, they, they described the events in, in that segment of text. And in a very old form of these chapter summaries, in um, in old Latin, um, we have the mention of the the adulteress. It's not a very detailed mention, but it's enough to show that that it's there in the place where you would expect it to be there, there in John chapter eight. And um, these Latin summaries have been estimated to go back to the time of Cyprian, or maybe just a bit afterwards, which would be in the mid two hundreds. Now, how old is our oldest manuscript of of John? Um, well, we've got about 18 uh, fragmentary copies, or copies that would be considered ancient papyrus copies. Of those 18 uh, copies, and uh, I hope I'm uh, qu quoting uh, Wasserman's uh, recent, recent book on this correctly, but uh, 16 of them can't tell us anything because they don't have this part of the text extant. We don't know if it was there or not, as far as we can tell those fragments, because we just don't have that part of John. And two of them, they don't have the story of the adulteress. That's just two out of 16. The others we have to say, well, we just don't know what the other 16. Meanwhile, at approximately the same time period, in Latin, they clearly had the story of the adulteress in the mid-200s uh, there in Latin. But somebody might say, oh, but the Latin, they, 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 those were the Western people that liked, they liked everything. No, no wonder they would have it. But there's also elements of, of uh, grammatical nuances, uh, terms, ter vocabulary terms that are used, that imply that not only in those uh, chapter introductions, but also in the writings of Ambrose, um, that there is a Greek base underlying the Old Latin for, for all the parts around it, but also for the story of the adulterers itself. So if you grant the, the, the Greek base there, and you're granting that this is indeed from the uh, mid-200s, you've got a pretty good uh, case from antiquity there. That's good. Um... Besides... But besides the point that it is in over 1,000 
400 manuscripts. Pro probably you could safely estimate 1,500 Greek manuscripts. Uh, to give you an idea of how, how much research has been done on this, if you look at a New King James Version Bible, you'll see a little footnote about this that says, well, this passage is in over, over 900 manuscripts. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Add on another 500 and you're getting close. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, pretty wide attestation. So um, I was just reading a few of the comments in uh, the Soteriology 101 uh, group that we've put this on. Um, I'm not going to read who this is, but um, I'll just read the comment. It says, I forget where I first heard it, saw it, it blew me away. It really has me evaluating my use of the NIV all these years in reference to what you're talking about right here with the woman caught in adultery and the attestation for it in the manuscript evidence. He says, I have a sentimental attachment to the physical copy I got with the NIV since it was a gift from my grandparents, but recently my wife and I have been comparing the King James with the NIV, and it makes for interesting comparisons. So if you could, um, why don't you just take a second and talk about the impact that some of these textual variations and are having on the translations that, that we're using today? Um, specifically, I mean, just the, say the two translations that were mentioned there. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll try to cover a few loose ends with the story of the woman called an adultery as we okay. go. Perfect. And I might need to stop and call time out to get more, more apple cider. But um, with the story of the woman called an adultery, uh, this is a, a good case where you can look at the NIV and some other versions, and if you're treating the footnotes as if they're going to tell you anything really informative about manuscripts, stop. Because they're too brief, that's not what they're for. The footnotes just make you aware of it, so, you, so those that are interested in, this, in the subject, those the, those the people that don't want to say, I'm just going to trust the scholars on this one. This gives them something to do. Um, but uh, but if you got to trust the scholars, this is the uh, consensus, the uh, conventional wisdom of the group that made the, the translation, and uh, put five different people on the committee, and you might get different footnotes. But um, but don't don't trust the uh, footnotes of Bible translations to tell you anything more than the most basic, bare bones, sometimes completely unhelpful, and uh, often misleading uh, data. Because for, we'll, we'll just give you an, an example in the uh, uh, the uh, Christian uh, Holman Christian Standard Version, except it's not the Holman version anymore. Uh, I believe that if you look at a footnote about the woman called an adultery in in that version, it will say that. John 7.44, some manuscripts move this passage to John 7.44. And if you just read the footnote, you would think, oh, there must be some ancient Greek manuscripts that have it at John 7.44. But this is not the case. Um, no Greek manuscript has it there at John 7.44. Uh, Georgian manuscripts have it at John 7.44. So it's talking about versional manuscripts at this point without telling the reader, oh, we're talking about versional manuscripts at this point. Just like when it comes to the ending of the Gospel of Mark, our most the manuscripts that we consider most reliable don't have it. Do they mention that Irenaeus's manuscripts, which were a lot older than the ones that we have, uh, he, he he quoted Mark sixteen nineteen from his manuscripts. Uh, no, the footnotes aren't going to challenge the reader to understand who Irenaeus was um, or to give the names of manuscripts or the number or the actual quantities of manuscripts. Uh, part of the reason for that is that if we told the reader, no, only two manuscripts have this, and it's actually quoted by. By, by Irenaeus, uh, alluded to by Justin, and incorporated into the in, in Dictations Diatessaron in the, in, the, in the second century, nobody's going to do what we want them to do, which is to ignore it. Now, um, 
getting getting back to uh, the the references to the woman caught in adultery, um, that what they don't tell you when they say the manuscripts manuscripts have it looks like it's been moved around. Um, what they don't say is you know, how clearly the the Vulgate testifies to to its inclusion in the text at this point. They also don't say that in the manuscripts or in the flagship manuscripts that have it in that small group of manuscripts at the end of John, that there's a note that says somebody says basically, now don't hold me to an exact translation of the note, but something to the gist of, in our manuscripts we found this passage in the Gospel of John, right there after after it says no 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 prophet comes from this particular area, and but but our, the, our, we're, we're fans of Chrysostom, and we're fans of these other commentators, and they they don't comment on it. On it. So we took it out of our copy of John that had it there at basically what we would say is seven, chapter seven, verse 50, 53 through 11, and we moved it back here to the end of the Gospel of John. So here it is for you. So uh, with that note in the equation, the the picture changes significantly because here's the person saying we found it in our old copy. We didn't find it in our, these these other copies. But we found it in ours, and we moved it. And also, when you have it, people say, well, well, what about Luke? How did it get to Luke if it was originally in John? Well, again, in the lectionary, and uh, Chris Keith has written some, some, some things to this effect, and, and it's also in, in my book. Um, in the lectionary, there were there were feast days. Part of the lectionary was, uh, was cyclical, and, it, and whatever day Easter was in the year, it started on Easter. But other days, in what was called the, the Minologion form of the lectionary, other days were... No, it's this day, it's this month, and it's this day, every day, every year. And in that lectionary, um, you had days that were assigned to, to celebrate particular uh, saints. Like, uh, oh, this uh, ancient martyr was killed on this day, and this day of the year is the day that we commemorate her death and we honor her memory. Or, no, th this day we won a battle like, like 500 years ago, and so this day is the day of the victory of this, this battle in this place. And so they'll have these special events, and, and uh, not all the same events were of the same importance everywhere, and so there was room for variation, uh, depending on where the lectionary was made. But the point is that, that Sergius and Bacchus had a particular day on September 7th, and their reading for, the, for, for their day uh, was from just a little bit earlier in the Gospel of Luke. That was the 7th. The uh, day to celebrate uh, St. Pelagia, one of the ancient saints that was mentioned by John Chrysostom, her day was September the 8th, and her reading, the, the, the segment of the Gospels that you would read in her honor, was John chapter, chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. And so you will find the reading for St. Pelagia, uh, that's a convenient place to put it, because that way the person who's doing the reading, the, the, the lecture, he doesn't have to go scurrying, flipping pages to find where the next reading is going to be. He doesn't have to go turn to where, where it had been either, either there in John, uh, or, or there at the end of John, he can say, well, let's just turn a page and we'll just keep on reading. No, the reading that comes after the reading for Sergius and Bacchus, right here, the reading for Pelagia. And so that's why you have it uh, there in Luke, to make a long story short. <laughs> no, that's good. So there's so much information, which you wrote about this in your book, which is called, uh, let's see, A Fresh Analysis of John 7:53 through 8:11. Hang on, sis. Hang on just a minute. Um, but and, uh, I, I, yeah, if I may, I'd also like to challenge uh, some some folks to, who have said, "Well, how can there be a a, a a mobile text like this? Surely that mobility shows 
non-originality. And I, I say, well, look, look at manuscript 225. Uh, it's the same. It does the same kind of thing. Just like the Family 13 manuscripts that that move, you know, the the segment to to Luke. Uh, they also move a little a little bit of of, of uh, Luke into Matthew, in Matthew 26. Uh, and you will find uh, the opening segment of John 13. You know, the foot washing. The foot washing, e- even though most American churches don't realize it. Was a was an interesting interesting part of uh, the Orthodox observation of Good Fr- of, of Good Friday of, of, of that Easter week, and there's a lot more that could be said about this, but that 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 central scene uh, basically set the stage for all of the uh, story of the crucifixion, which would lead up then later on in the, in the week to, to the resurrection. But that foot washing scene uh, in manuscript 225 uh, that gets moved. Are we going to say, oh, it can't be original because it got moved? No, this was just an example of somebody doing something for the convenience of a lecture. That's good. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, So we've got a lot more variants that we can go through. We've got some other we've got some other topics and closing points that we could go. We've been going for an hour and a half. Um, I want to leave it up to you. If if you want to come back and do another episode, we can. Or if you if you would like to, we can we can. just keep going with the variants or or just move on to our, our closing points, which are some of the, the, the things that we wanted to talk about with confessional, bibliology, preservation versus inspiration, and uh, some, some closing remarks about inerrancy, the CBGM, um, and then text types as well. I mean, there was so much that we, we could talk about, we could continue to talk about, um, but I want to leave it up to you. Where do you want to go from here? Well, to get, to get to cover all that would uh, probably need another episode, but uh, maybe pick out a, a few more of the, of variants that you'd like to dis- discuss, okay. and then we can have a, a, a to be continued. Perfect. Um, let's. We've got we've got one comment. I want to get your take on this before we wrap it up for tonight, then. And uh, this is from this is one, from one of our viewers in a watch party um, on Facebook, and for whatever reason, I wanted to tell you the uh, New Testament textual criticism group, um, I, it, it's got to be approved first before it can do the watch party. So the watch party didn't actually happen in that group, um, but it has, it's, it's gone in a, a, f- a few others, which is where this particular comment comes from. And uh, I'm going to put it up on the screen so you guys who are watching can see as well and uh, get your take on it. He says, this is from Sean Adams. He says, so far it's been good as usual. Always enjoy your discussions. However, when you use the Latin for attestation, that same translation would also attest to the use of the Apocrypha, to which most TR and KJV proponents would reject. Are you okay with its inclusion based on attestation? What would your take be on that? Well, um, just like when we, when we uh, look into the writings of any patricia writer, our question is not, uh, what were the uh, doctrinal, uh, how, how good was his doctrine? Uh, we're just asking the question of what was in his manuscripts. Uh, we can look at Origen's manuscripts, and uh, Origen, you know, well, well, he believes some strange stuff. But the question is, what was in the manuscripts? What was he? What was he quoting? Well, we, we don't really care what Origen thought about it. For, uh, for 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 our purposes as textual critics, we care what readings does he support. And so with the Vulgate, um, Jerome is looking at old uh, at old manuscripts, and also with the. Uh, with the old Latin, I, th- I think the the writer is uh, asking about the the old Latin, the old Latin, not just the Vulgate. But uh, with the old Latin, we're talking about tra- early translations of the New Testament. Now, uh, and and those translations of the of the Gospels uh, 
we don't really know, I think, in, in most cases, how close those, those were connected as far as which translators did what. We don't even know exactly who, who did the Old Latin translations. We don't, we don't know their names. So, uh, so we really don't know how closely they were, they were connected with, with uh, what, what form of the Old Testament they would use. But, uh, yeah. but, they, but, they, but again, the question is, what Greek text does their work imply that they, that they had there? Right. Yeah, and, and I think that's a good point, Sean. I hope that um, answers your question. I'm sure that you've got follow-up on that as well. So um, why don't we do this? If you all have questions for what we've talked about tonight or you have questions that you want to have answered in regard to textual criticism overall, um, I think James Snap is, is, is the guy to go to, and we can, we can get those questions to him. Um, you can either go directly to James uh, on his blog site, which is uh, the text of the scriptures. Is that right? The, the, the text of the Gospels. The text of the com, And uh, there's, a, there's contact information there. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can leave us a voicemail on any of our podcasting platforms. We should be on every podcasting platform uh, there is. So if you just go into the description menu on any one of the episodes and click the link there that says leave a voicemail, um, you can do that, and we'll actually incorporate that into the episode when we get uh, James Snap Jr. back on, and uh, we can we can pick up from there with some of the questions that you've got to kind of start the episode, and then we'll we'll pick up where we left off tonight um, with getting into a, a few other textual variants. Let us know um, what variants you want us to hit on, and and we'll make sure that we can start out with those. I know we've got a list that we've put together, we and along with. Uh, just some of the doctrines of inspiration, preservation, inerrancy, the CBGM, and uh, the impact of, of, of what these types of conversations have um, in regard to, you know, even the translations that we use today. Some of you all have, have uh, pointed out that very fact that there are some differences that you're looking at um, and taking into consideration. Maybe it's the first time that you've seen some of these differences and uh, may or may not realize that there is an impact on doctrine. Uh, but these are important conversations to have. I think so many of us um, would like to have them. I, I posted this in Soteriology 101, and uh, somebody replied, uh, hey, it's about time we get something that's worth talking about in this group. I love that group, but, um, you know, when it comes to the, the conversation of the text, um, I mean, I think that that's kind of the groundwork for any any of the conversation that follows. Um, but anyways... Um, James Snap Jr., I really appreciate you coming on. I want to. I want you to kind of tie up any loose ends and leave us with a final word before we wrap it up today. I would say there's, there's a a number of uh, passages and, and textual contests that I that I have dealt with on, on my blog. Um, it, for those that have questions about a particular passage, you might want to go to the blog and, and Google and search search for that particular passage, and uh, that'll just give some groundwork. If, if it's one that I've already covered, that'll that'll give me some groundwork to. to uh, might, might have already answered your question before before it was asked by uh, by some of the work that I've already done there. Yep, great point. Go check out go check out his blog site, thetextofthegospels.com. And uh, I've got to add a caveat um, here. By the way, Leighton Flowers, if you do watch this, I love your show. I listen to all your podcasts. It's it's great. I love what you're doing in the realm of soteriology and and Calvinism and provisionism. So I really I do I do I love I love what you're doing there. So, um, but. Uh, as far as the conversation goes tonight, we've got a, a lot of room um, to, to kind of pick up where we left off in, in the next episode. So um, we did cover a lot of ground tonight. And uh, James, I really appreciate you coming on because, I mean, I'm not a textual scholar. I, I don't know a lot of textual scholars, uh, but it, this is something that I can tell that you're very passionate about. You've, you've, you've kind of given your life to this thing and uh, have just put in a lot of time with it. You can tell. 
um, which, uh, you know, is, is extremely beneficial to guys like me who want to kind of carry the conversation past uh, what I would see as a threshold in my own study. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate you coming on tonight. Okay. And, and also at the, at the, uh, at the Facebook group, uh, NT Textual Criticism, uh, in the files there, you can also, uh, and sometimes you might have to scroll down a page or two to find them, but there are also uh, special papers there, and they're all free. Uh, feel free to, to, uh, to uh, grab some research there. That's great. Yeah, there's so much material, um, which, you know, to me, this is going to sound kind of amateur, but uh, some of the stuff that you put on your blog on just learning Greek, I've been reading that, and I can actually read Greek. It's really slow, but I can actually read it now, and uh, that, that means a lot to me. So um, hang on. Oh, you got it. All right, there you go. Let's turn it up for you. There. All right. Hey, we're going to wrap it up. So um, thank you again, James, for coming on. And I'm going to cut to the closing scene and go from there. Okay. Have a good, have a good night. Okay. All right. So anyways, thanks guys for tuning in. Uh, you know what? I'm watching my kids. It is what it is. I mean, it, that's just part of life. So anyways, thanks for joining us. Uh, we've got, uh, I think on the 23rd, which is next week sometime, I'm going to be on the Berean Dialogues and we're going to be talking about the, the doctrine of free grace uh, when it comes to soteriology. So imagine that. Uh, and then uh, we're going to have Jonathan Sheffield on. Uh, we're kind of going to take a break until the end of the year with all the holidays and everything that's going on. Uh, but we're going to pick up kind of where we left off when we do and uh, continue this conversation. I think it's important one to be had, and it seems like this is very important to a lot of people. So anyways, thank you guys for tuning in. Please like, share, and uh, rate us and all that good stuff. Feel free to just play this wherever you want to. No big deal. It's, it's, we encourage that. So anyways, God bless you all and have a good night.